Welcome to the New Wave Entrepreneur, where we dive headfirst into Web 3.0, personal sovereignty, spirituality, and psychology. These conversations are unfiltered access to brilliant minds and actionable advice that will prepare you for the rapidly changing world. So, jump in. The water is warm and the tide is rising. Ah, my friends, welcome back to another episode of The New Wave Entrepreneur. It's Daniel DiPiazza checking in with you here. And we have one of my mentors, uh, a man I've known for over 15 years now, Dr. Joe Klemzeski. Uh, He is in the house. I'll tell you more about him in just a second. I want to make sure that if you are new to the show, you do us the honor of subscribing to the show and leaving a comment. Guys, we're building a whole community here. And the reason why we're doing it is because All of us listening to this show realize the world is changing. And it's not just about what we can do individually. It's about what we can do collectively. So we are working together to get financially prepared. We're working together to get personally prepared. We're working together to get psychologically and emotionally and spiritually prepared for the shift that's going down. That's part of what these podcasts are about. It's a message between people in a community sharing what we know and improving 1% every day. You know, I bring guests on to help us do these improve to help us make these improvements. Uh, I, I review books for us. Uh, I bring my uh, my clients on some of these podcasts to have discussions around these important topics. That's why we're here. So if you're here, make sure that you're getting all the updates for when we're dropping new stuff. Um, so subscribe. You can go to newwaveentrepreneur.com, and that's where I'm putting basically all the updates for what's happening in the community. And so from there, you can get to our Substack, where we have uh, essentially unreleased content that we don't put up on the public platform. I have essays, we have articles, we have basically whole workshops. And one thing I'm telling you guys is that this year is one of what I'm calling it continuous improvement. I want to get better every single day. And in, in that process, what I'm doing is I'm looking at all the major areas of my life that I want to improve, and I'm putting together training programs for them all. And you'll see these in the workshops that I'm dropping every single month. So in December, it was the New Wave Workshop, which was all about crypto and Web3. This month, in fact, today, later today, I'm hosting the Money Moves Workshop, which is all about financial literacy and IQ for professionals and entrepreneurs. And in the coming months throughout this year, I'm going to be putting together more workshops every single month on all the topics that I think are important for us, that are interesting for us, and that are relevant for us in this new wave. And everyone who's part of New Wave Premium gets to come to those workshops basically for free because we're given all access passes to everyone who's a premium member. So make sure you get in on this stuff. Um, you can learn more about what we're doing at the program. You can learn more about what we're doing um, on the YouTube channel, which I'm relaunching now. I'm rebranding the whole thing. You'll see if you keep checking back on YouTube over the next couple of weeks, uh, you'll see that I'm putting up new banners. I'm taking down some of the old videos. I'm, I'm just like I'm just doing a total, a total facelift. And so hopefully you're enjoying everything that you're seeing under construction in real time. I appreciate you for being here. I love every single one of you uh, who listen to the show. I've seen it grow just from when I released the first few episodes in November all the way up to now. Uh, I think we've just reached uh, 15,000 downloads on the show, which is incredible. And, um, And yeah, just thank you so much. And we're going to get into the show now. Dr. Joe Klemzeski is a, is a close friend of mine. And I'll read his bio here. And then I'll give you a little bit of background on my experience with him before we jump into this. Because it's essentially jumping all the way into a conversation. I saved the intro for specifically just this, this piece between you and I, the listener. 
Joe Klimczewski, PhD, has earned degrees in physical therapy, health, nutrition, literary journalism, and health education. He also has a master's uh, that he pursued in social psychology uh, from Harvard. So uh, Dr. Joe Klimczewski began licensing the diet doc business model in 2007 and has helped to develop almost 150 diet doc uh, weight loss centers around the world. He has spoken to universities, school systems, fitness camps, medical organizations, Fortune 500 companies. Joe was a contributing science editor for Chalo Publishing for 14 years. His articles regularly appeared in Iron Man, Natural Bodybuilding and Fitness, Exercise for Men, and Best Body. Many have been translated for German, Italian, and Asian publications. He has written for numerous websites, including eDiets and Huffington Post, uh, has contributed chapters to fitness industry books, and has edited uh, physiology textbooks for a major publisher. His book, The Diet Doc's Guide to Permanent Weight Loss, um, was released in 2009 by Harvest House Publishing. And uh, he has another book that he co-authored with his friend, Corey Probst. Um, Joe was a retired WNBF professional drug-free bodybuilder, certified strength and conditioning specialist, and certified through the International Society for Sports Nutrition. He's known as the godfather of flexible dieting. It was Joe's revolution in the science of contest prep that led to the coaching industry that exists today. He has personally coached more than 400 clients to pro cards, more than 150 to pro titles, and almost 50 to world champion titles. So that is my friend, Dr. Joe Klemzeski. He is um, the first, I would say the first real coach that I ever worked with. And he set the tone in my life for understanding what a true, uh, what a true great mentor could help you accomplish. At a young age, I partnered up with him to basically teach me the ropes of nutrition and essentially bodybuilding. He wasn't my first bodybuilding mentor, but he was the first coach that I actually paid for, that I took seriously and followed all of his advice. And when I did that, I was uh, 19, 20, 21, in my, early, my late teens and early 20s, and I ended up winning every single show that I did with him. Um, or at least, well, I didn't win every show. I won, I won uh, most of them, and I placed highly in the others. And these were pro-qualifying shows, uh, and I was in my, in my very early 20s. And, um, and I just saw the power of uh, flexible but objective dieting. And understanding macronutrient intake from an analytical perspective. Most people, when they measure their food, don't actually understand the numbers behind what they're eating. And so they can't make an accurate uh, assessment of, of whether or not they're eating enough or too much. And Joe taught me how to truly uh, quantify what I was eating. And he gave me a skill that I've been using for life, that I've used to stay in shape for uh, almost two decades now. So it's been invaluable. And as a coach, uh, he has one of the best eyes for top performance. He's an elite performer himself. Uh, as I just read in his bio, he uh, his hobby is getting new graduate degrees. So this is a man who is steeped in the sciences. Uh, and yet he also has uh, his roots in uh, in. I'd say the higher levels of consciousness as well. He's a great man. Uh, you'll enjoy this conversation with him. I'm going to jump right into the show uh, and then we'll catch you on the break. All right, here we go. changed up your background you're always changing up your background 
I'm just sitting in a different spot. I haven't you a couple, <laughs> couple different offices, and so I just uh, just wherever I happen to be sitting that day. Just been rotating around in the same spot. <laughs> Three sixty, yeah. What? So th- this should be on your left. Then what's on your left? The, what is that? Uh, that poster? Uh, that over here. Which no, one? No, no, this, okay, right there. One right there. Yeah. Uh, that is a representation of our parent company, the Diet Doc, in all of our different sub companies and affiliations. So projects that we have. I, I literally wanted in my office, Daniel, a place so I can see my company. And so I know good. the parts the parts I have to take care of and, and who needs attention when. You have good branding. You always had good branding. Appreciate that. I, yeah. You know, you had the the Klemzeski pose with the you know, the Dr. Joe pose. It was on the yeah. jackets. It was a very nice little uh little touch, that merch. Well, you know, aesthetic is more important than content in life. Mm-hmm. You know, for sure. You know. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we'll just look at the state of American media. That's pretty obvious. That's exactly right. One thing I'll give you credit for is you had a very, very popular like series of forums back in the day before Facebook really took off because everyone had private forums. Yours were popping, man. It killed popping. me, man. That that transition. I was I was one of the people that just got a stake through the heart when Facebook came I out. Know. That was your whole customer group just right there. That that was my own ecosystem. It was, yep. it, was it was the the universe. You can still do it, but it's just not the same. No, now I know you have to go where the fish are. Like if you're, if you think yeah. you can stay in your own little pond and expect to survive, you're, you're dead. So you, you got to go where the fish are. <sighs> yeah, I mean, you know, the the survivors will be the ones who learn how to adapt, right? It's like knowing how to knowing how to play with with the new rules, and that's kind of we've seen the evolution of the web through these different iterations. Uh, let's see, you were in your what your thirties when Web One One Web One was out. Mm-hmm. Early thirties. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Yeah. So a really funny story. I was in my clinical internship at the Indiana University School of Medicine when email came out, and I remember this. I had this little old lady clinical instructor. She was probably like in her seventies, on this gigantic like Pentium One whatever kind of processor. <laughs> she was showing me with those little green like characters on the screen what email was. And, and you'll laugh at this because even me, as the young person in that scenario, I was like, that's stupid. Right. That's never going to take off email. <laughs> you weren't the only one. I mean, a lot of people thought that. And because that entire uh, iteration of the internet, Web 1.0, was so much just moving the analog to digital. So it's like, all right, I put the paper online, but I can already read the paper. I don't need to see it online. It's right here. You know, uh, it was so much of a just a, a copy of what was available physically that the utility wasn't as readily available. And then web 2.0 came along and that was read, write. So it's like, well, I can contribute back to the web. I can make these communities. And then mobile came along and combined with that. And then it just exploded. Yeah. And and one of my biggest misses in my career was I was so busy with my company at the time and we were thriving in just vertical growth mode. So Facebook came along. This is now what, 16, 17 years ago. And, and of course, it was advertised for this is how you keep in touch with grandma and your high school friends and all that. And I'm like, well, I don't have time for that shit. And I'm, <laughs> I'm busy growing my business. And then I see everybody actually yeah. move their businesses there. So then Instagram came out and the story was, well, this is where the kids are going to get away from their parents on Facebook. Right, I'm like, well, right, that's not my right. business model. Fuck Instagram. I don't, that's not going to help me. And it's like miss after miss after miss. Well, you know, I'm actually reading a book now. I'm rereading it. It's a book called uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport, who's a professor at Georgetown. And he talks the opposite. He says, you're not missing anything by not going deep. That's all shallow work. And you should just be writing. You should just be doing the the coach's coach work. 
That that's my that is my play now, Daniel. In the fact that first of all, yeah. it I, it makes me feel better that I didn't miss all those opportunities. But in reality, what I have now done for the last three or four years, when I decided, okay, listening to Gary Vaynerchuk and everybody else and talking about, oh and, and you know, Cal Newport's book is right on my bookshelf across from me here. I thought, you know, I, I need to not just be prolific, but consistent, and so. My whole goal with every podcast, every project I do is to create something that's so evergreen and just in in perpetuity interesting to people that eventually when people find us, they're going to say, wow, like that guy, look at that. Like there are a thousand episodes of that and 500 episodes of that. So I am definitely playing the long game in just creating content that matters curating it to an audience that I want to connect with specifically. You know, I'm not after everybody. I want that minimum viable audience. And so, yeah, that it, it did kind of redirect back into my wheelhouse, I have to say. I feel like we're in similar uh, in similar positions. I feel like over the past, you have a longer career than I do, but in my own space, I feel like I've had many different bursts of prolific production that's created an audience for me. And now I'm saying, okay, I need to consolidate this audience. I need to, you know, as Kevin Kelly would say, get my thousand true fans in order, get them on the platform, engage on that platform on a consistent way as a production schedule and just build out this portfolio. I have a lot of stuff out there, but now it's time to consolidate. Totally agree. Totally agree. And you know, those thousand true super fans as I've learned, because I'm still not the kind of guy who just wants to get behind a computer and sell something. I sure. maybe old school, I don't know, but I, I just, I want everything I do to have so much value to another human being that I, I want that to be a, a deep experience. And then when I go to make some kind of a, a marketing based move to get people to recognize it, I think it's just self-evident that it it auto-regulates itself. I, I'm going to be bringing people to me who want that kind of interaction. And so I, I just end up with a higher level of person I get to work with every day. Yeah, I mean, you know, transactional uh, sales, transactional people. Okay, this would be useful for people. Do a whole rundown of all your, your educational pedigree. You're the one of the most well-educated people that I know. Uh, but the asshole goes up as the education goes up. So I'm yeah. not sure if the trade-off has been worth it. <laughs> So it's funny, I just saw this graph that shows on an XY axis, like if you're an undergraduate student, you know almost nothing about everything. And then as you go down toward the PhD, now you know everything about next to nothing, like one thing, you know, you know a lot about one thing. Right, right. So I, I started out um, in business and marketing. I was, you know, in my senior year, going to graduate with a bachelor's in that. And then in my early 20s, I just looked around and thought, holy shit, like, what is that going to do for me? It does, am I just going to work in a cubicle the rest of my life? I, I loved fitness and nutrition, and I was already a, an amateur bodybuilder at that point. So I, exercise science, physiology, kinesiology, that wasn't really a thing back then. So talking to people, they said, try physical therapy. So I, I got a job as a physical therapy aide in a hospital, and, and mm -hmm. it matched what I loved to do, and I thought, this is it. So I completely changed gears, did all my prereqs, went to physical therapy school, became an orthopedic physical therapist. That involved, you know, pre-med allied health work, and so it's very general as well as specific in, in physical therapy. And I mean, it's still to this day, like probably the, the happiest thing that I've done in terms of real utility. But then being at that point, a pro bodybuilder, I, I was in that zone. I was learning and I was one of the first people in my family to ever go to college. And so I, I just felt that wind at my back. 
And and just for fun, I continued to you know pursue a doctorate in nutrition, and and it was just literally you know at lunchtime and after school and Saturday or after work and Saturday you know I'm, I'm doing this for a few years and I'm learning and it was all just for the learning, but then I got noticed by a publisher because fitness magazines again pre social media no, no content online that everybody needed good writers for their magazines, yeah. muscle and fitness, yeah. muscular development, Ironman. So with a guy with a doctorate in nutrition and being a pro bodybuilder, uh, I was a shoe in for just creating that kind of content. So I spent about 15 years writing for magazines. And then I wrote a book and a guy wanted to co-author a next edition with me. And he was a medical doctor. And we were talking about the value of like having an MPH for public health and all that. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. I have this doctorate in nutrition, but that's pretty specific. Maybe I kind of need that route. So I did a second PhD in health education because I thought that's kind of a terminal degree. It gets me in that ballpark of just public. How long is that is that degree? Would you say how long? Yeah, how many years? Uh, it took me about five. Um, so five years. Yeah, and it is part time. So what's the break between the first two doctorates? Like ten years or ten years or more, right? Uh, seven, eight. It was a, it was a nice break. Seven. Okay. It was a nice break. Okay. But but then that then it was like you know just the the gas pedal was down and I felt like okay now now I want to do something that broadens me even further because now now I kind of got interested in publishing and and I was I was in that game so I did a an MFA in creative and in professional writing because I thought okay I love to write now I should probably go learn how to actually do it so then I I did my MFA and you know you know how it is when you're just around other people you you never expect what is going to happen you know you just you 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 run into people you you meet people and it changes your life so I kind of got swept into narrative nonfiction in the social science realm. And so I ended up doing my, my master's thesis where I was, you know, my, my book list was like 150 books in social psychology and personal psychology, or I'm sorry, uh, personality psychology, developmental psychology. So I graduated and I thought, okay, now I know how to write and I want to write in the social sciences, but I need to learn about those. And so I, I went to Harvard, their extension school, and did a master's in social psychology. Nice. Then nice. through the pandemic, I went to Ohio or Ohio University and did a master's in social science because that's a little bit more specific toward anthropology and political science and history, not just social psych. So, so you know, my first half of my education, I guess you could say everything up to two doctorates was all in the health sciences, and then three master's beyond that, all in the social sciences. <laughs> Your kids must be so annoyed. Oh, dad's <laughs> taking another, he's doing another degree, guys. Everyone get ready. Well, now I'm, ta- you know, it never bothered them because, I mean, they'll see me on <laughs> Sunday, like they'll walk in the kitchen and I'm playing like, you know, lectures and stuff and I'm always writing papers, but, yeah. uh, you know, it, it all, it all, to me, it's just, it keeps me mentally sharp, keeps me learning, learning something, new. But, but I always like you, Daniel, I always see the functionality in it. And as we talked about the other day, every single paper I write for a college course, everything I ever do, like that stays in the bank. And that's something that could be mm-hmm. an Atlantic mm-hmm. article that could be the germ for a book later. Like that's, there's always, I, I'm always writing with one eye on what can I use this for? Not just the, the grade. Yeah, I mean, a few things there. One, uh, I think 
just perpetual learning does keep you young. You look at like a Noam Chomsky. He's still super sharp. You know, he's written a hundred plus books or something crazy like that. And he's just a machine. He's just like a fact machine. And he yeah. reads so much. And then he writes, he regurgitates it. It's just a, it's a, like a neural exercise, if anything, because writing helps you to crystallize your thoughts, you know, into a distinct idea. Whereas, you know, if you, if you don't, if, you know, and I, and I, and I realize this from, from, taking periods of not writing. When I don't write, I go back to writing. I think, oh, I can't even fucking crystallize my thoughts. What am I thinking right now? You know, whereas if you're in a mode of writing, you can just clearly start writing and it just starts to flow. And, you know, there, there really is no writer's block, though. Just a matter of getting in front of the, the machine. They're just putting pen to paper. Yeah, yeah. And um, and what, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, I mean, what else is new? Well, first of all, the fact that you bring up Noam Chomsky, and and I have your article that you just read pulled up here, so I can reference it if mm. I need to. Mm. But uh, yeah, oh, <laughs> you, you, you emailed me because I you did quote Noam in there, which I liked. I emailed you. I emailed you, and I said, "Read this article." And you said, "I disagree with everything with everything you've said." I said, "Come on the podcast." What do you want to pick it apart? No, Art, no. no. I, first of all, I, I like your writing style. You're you, you're you're very similar to me in that there's just this underlying sarcasm and, and humor that I love. Yeah. Very relatable and readable. Um, Nothing is serious. I, I did pick out your best line, though, if I can put on my editor hat for a second. I would love to. Um, Please. We are data hogs being fattened with ads and slaughtered with Amazon Prime. I love that, that one. That's your best line in the article. I know. That was the best. And I put that on Twitter. Fucking crickets, bro. Nothing. <laughs> Fuck you guys. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I knew it. I but knew it. it that was going to be my, t- my subtitle. Well, you do need to change, first of all, where it says, and slaughtered with, with Amazon Prime, it needs to be slaughtered by Amazon Prime. By Amazon Prime. You're so correct. That, if you do that, I think you'll get a lot more interaction online. They don't understand. I mean... It was a good article. Okay. It seriously was. You, I, I can tell you what I disagree with, but it was, it was a really, really good article. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's... And I, if you disagree, disagree, awesome. We can talk about it. I'm just writing just to write. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't... My thing is also, it's more fun to write if you're not trying to convince anybody of anything. Because you actually convince more people if you don't give it, if you just don't care. It, because it creates more of a genuine connection with the reader. Well, I always learn from you. You know, you and I met, you were 18 years old when we met. And, uh-huh. and you you, right. you constantly, you know, talk about me as kind of a mentor to you. But, man, I, I, I swear I look to you so much as as what's coming up behind. Who, who is inheriting the world? And I've, I've always looked to you for a lot of things because of your intelligence and and the way you wrote this article, the way it's formatted, the way you're pulling in all the extra media, I mean, you, you know, the clips and the you know, in the charts, like this is this is somebody. I don't know how long this took you to write, but if you were actually a journalist and your assignment was you had full time, forty hours a week, and an entire month to write an article, like that's how good you 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 did here. That's how well you wrote this article. Thank you. That really means a lot because I know you're not. There's no reason for you to say that. No, I, I would rather writer. insult you for sure. Yes. No, thank you. I appreciate it. And, uh, and that means a lot also because, yeah, a lot of times these things, they'll, you have to write them because you really want to because they're not always going to get the response that you want. And then you have to just one in X number are going to be, you know, going to knock it out of the park. I'm sure you've experienced that too with publishing stuff. It's like one out of every hundred things people are like, that's amazing. You're like, but what about the other things? Well, this article itself, this, this is the genesis of a book. Like you, you could make a book out of this. I'm working on that right now. Okay. Uh, and, you know, for those people who may not know what you're referencing, I'm sure you'll put it in the, the notes here. But, uh, you know, the fact that you're looking at how media and power structures like government take catastrophes in life like COVID or they, they either manufacture them or they shine a light on them and extend the life well beyond anything reasonable. 
just to continue to, to commodify our attention, to perhaps keep themselves in power and insulate themselves in their own little realm of feeling like they were right all along. It's like there's there are just layers upon layers of why people use the psychology of persuasion. And and that's that's what I feel like the the premise of your article is. You know, it's not it's not about COVID per se. It's about the structures right. underneath of it. Correct. And it's not um it's only one filter and perspective for looking at the world. It doesn't mean it's the only way of interpreting the events that happen because every interpretation is different. You can look at the same facts and interpret them as not being part of a media control conspiracy, which I'm not even really saying conspiracy. I'm just pointing out the fact that there are there are certainly there are certainly correlations between the effect on the media, the the grip that they have over a certain narrative, the way that they use things, the fact that we've seen even just this play out a few times in our lifetime, you look at, for instance, the response to 9-11. It was very much a similar response to having to the pandemic, but with a different context. And so it's like, well, if you see that a few times, you start to just pattern recognize, you know? You... Yeah, but so what, here, here's my big contention of your article, okay. is that I, I'm not sure you emphasize enough the fact that most people get swept up into the cycle unknowingly and they just become foot soldiers so so think of like nietzsche yes. and the ubermensch versus the herd uh you know the puppet master versus the crowd but I, I, there's i don't think there's this necessarily this gigantic oligarchy conspiracy to say hey guys look we have this we have this windfall there's this pandemic let's suck the life out of it let's let's make all kinds of political hay for our party this or that this is at one person at a time everybody's incentive is what's right in front of them. My incentive is to write a good article. My incentive yeah. is to do a good piece on CNN so that my boss keeps me on the air. You know, it's it's not that I have this grand design to spend five years bilking people and and, and destroying institutions. It's just, and, and people believe it. So whether you're on the side of being an anti-vaxxer or being somebody who's hyper-responsive and fearful of COVID, either side, you, you most people are genuinely in tune with their decision making and they really believe what they believe. You know, Don Lemon believes what he believes with everything in him. Tucker Carlson believes everything that he believes with everything in him. Maybe, Maybe. yeah, he, he's, he's one who's <laughs> looking at you. But, um, you know, and they're just, they're, they're having these fights every day in the systems that oppose each other snowball, but it's not because there's one big puppet master, you know, creating it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, and I think, it's fair to say all systems optimize for the best results for their own organization, you know? And so anything that comes into this organism's path, this organism being the corporation, the government even being a corporation, it's just going to optimize whatever is available for the maximum benefit. So, but then when you have all these different competing or collaborating organisms all optimizing for COVID, it becomes all these different systems that are all, you know, some misbehaving in this chaos. So you have the government, you have big tech, you have, you know, these like cell groups of, you know, these like these cultural outcasts, these QAnon, you have all these different organisms that are functioning for their own best interests. And it creates this chaos mm -hmm. and there is no awareness. It's all it's all completely almost automatic. Well, I think, again, like your article, your definition there or just picking it apart you're looking at that macro level of what's happening. Like in hindsight, we're going to look back and we're going to say, yes, that happened. But what gets lost in the interim 
is the fact like in your article, you make the statement, you know, hey, I'm Daniel DiPiazza. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm not this. I'm not anti-science, but I'm over this. Like I'm done. Well, you may be done, but 6 million people died. They're not done. You know, their families aren't done. And more people, like even children who get this, my my grandson is 15 months old. He's had COVID twice now. That makes him about 600% more likely to get type 1 diabetes, have organ damage, brain damage, because COVID is a novel coronavirus, attacks the epithelial lining of blood vessels. And every time you get it, you, you're going to have permanent damage. This virus could mutate into more benign forms. Omicron is a step in that direction, but there's absolutely no guarantee that it'll stay there. And so we're lucky it doesn't have the lethality of something like the Black Plague or polio. It is a common coronavirus, such as a seasonal cold or flu, but with a 500% higher lethality rate, that's why we've had 6 million people die so far. And for people who think, I'm young, I'm healthy, I got this, you're going to get it next year, and you're going to get it next year, and you're going to get it the next year, and you're going to get it the next year. And if things don't stop, if this doesn't just mutate itself out of existence like the Spanish flu did, it will kill you. It won't kill you this year. It may not kill you in five years, but it's going to take 20, 30, 40 years off your life unless it mutates favorably, or like smallpox and polio, we do vaccinate ourselves out of the catastrophe. It's it's gonna happen one of those three ways. And anybody sitting here now thinking that they've chosen the right lottery ticket, well, good luck, you may be right, you may not. What One would hope that over as the years go on, the vaccines will get better and better. Yeah, and they will. I mean, and that's what's great about mRNA technology. Like people don't even know what that is. People who say they don't want the vaccine, they're afraid of side effects. And I say, well, explain the technology to me. They don't even know what the letters mRNA stand for. And yet they've just bought into some, to your point, just, you know, gigantic conglomerate mindsets. And now they're locked into that and probably to their own peril. Yeah, I mean, and, and then you also lock yourself into confirming whatever bias you already have because there are whole channels dedicated to just telling you that. Absolutely. Uh, and you can, it's actually pretty insane if you think about it. That's that's what's evil. If anything needs to happen, I know they've had congressional hearings about this right now. They have to stop the curation of these echo chambers by by algorithms. It, That'll never stop. That'll I, never stop. That's I, I, how they, until they make money. I know. Well, it's how they make money, but they can make money other ways. That's true. But, you know, it's always a path of least resistance. Yeah, it's it's so interesting how you can, even with the term science, on from every perspective now, you can find science that supports that perspective from legitimate scientists. You can find it in words that you'll understand and colors that you recognize. You know, it can be a red thing or a blue thing or a green thing, and you'll find a something justifying your worldview. And then you'll see more of it the more you look for it. It's actually insane. Well, and, and that is, and that's, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking Cause about- Cause madness. That. I've spent a lot, because when social media <laughs> came about, and you know, like people like Jonathan Haidt, social psychologist, have even written books mm -hmm. now about how, you know, childhood suicide, especially among young girls, has gone up and so forth because of social media. Oh, yeah, I believe that. This is why I said it does have to stop. In 1890, we started passing legislation that created the only middle class in modern history, in human history. And it was because we were able to say, look, yes, the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts, you know, you can do that, 
but we're going to pass some child labor laws. We're going to we're going to create OSHA. We're going to do these things. We're going to start caring about the, the the worker. And so over the next 90 years, we created a thriving middle class. As soon as 1980 hit, neoliberalism kicked in and now all the money has filtered to the top and and CEOs and companies no longer have any resistance. They can do literally whatever they want and because oh, yeah. because Washington DC has bent over and the dick of Wall Street has been stuck in their ass for 40 years, nobody's willing to make a change. No, that's no your best quote stop. of the podcast. Well, I mean, I mean, that's that's the that's the bottom line. And as as long as Wall Street is fucking Washington DC with with money and politics, you, you, it is very difficult to make a change. I was writing about this uh, today. I was writing about the transition off of the gold standard in 71 and basically just you know, how after World War II, America had so much of uh, the world's gold reserve because it come over here during the war to protect it for safekeeping. And by the time all the gold was over here, we said, well, we'll just write you a check for it. It just became the global reserve currency. We had everyone's gold. So now we're printing the world's money and we're just going crazy for like 20 years. And then in, in 71, Nixon says, you know what? Fuck it. Just take the cap off. And he's just going to go off the off the, the gold the gold standard, and then every year since then, printing, 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 and just pissing out money. And it's certainly not the only factor, but unlimited printing of money is a huge factor in the gradual, you know, the gradual crumbling of the American economy. That, that's a huge part of it, and and also what that can lead to, because then there are microcosms of that in industry. So during the first phase of the pandemic, the day, the exact day, Disney furloughed 150,000 workers, they gave $15 billion to their, their board and shareholders in stock dividends. So it's like, let's, let's screw the little guy, but we're going to, we're going to line the pockets of this guy. And so, 15 billion. well, yeah. And yeah. And you know, in 1980, when this neoliberalism kicked in by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, they started it. Define neoliberal. Define neoliberalism. It, it's just it's simply kind of what I said graphically, where where the marriage of Washington and and capitalism takes place. So okay. it, it's where Washington says the greatest thing for everybody is just unbridled capitalism, predatory capitalism. Any way you can make a buck, good luck. Whatever collateral damage there is, is fine. It's it's still better to have more money at the top because of, quote, trickle-down economics. So since 1980, since 1980, we now have the bottom half of, of our economic sphere in, in the United States that is working twice as many hours for the mm -hmm. same money. The same amount of money. The top 10% yep. doing the same jobs. The top 10% yep. is now earning 200% yep. more. The top 1% is earning 400% more. The top 0.01% is making 700% more. So to your point, all of our billionaires in our corporate class during uh, the pandemic has made trillions of extra dollars. So the, the thing that I wish everybody understood is in 1980, the average CEO in our country made about 15 times his or her average worker. Now it's 300 times. There's more money in the oh, yeah. system, but it's all at the top. Oh yeah, if Elon Musk can be worth a quarter trillion personally, that shows a flaw in the system, not his genius. Absolutely. It's awesome for him. But it showed, you know, it's like my, my parents, uh, they sold their house in California and they'd only been in it about five years and they put a hundred grand, uh, you know, value on it before they, before they exited. And I, you know, they said, that's great. I said, that is great. But the fact that it went up so quickly means that the money is devaluing. <laughs> it's worth less, you know, because it, you can't 
gain this much value this quickly. And this is the inflationary thing we've seen. And obviously it's been accelerating because of the pandemic, but this trend was already happening. It's like you're letting air out of a balloon. Well, that's deflation, but you're, you're creating a problem and this is only worsening the problem. Uh, but it had already been happening. You know, another thing that people have a problem with is just the kind of binary thinking that, you know, it's a, it's a zero sum game. And Jeffrey Sachs, a very popular economist, I believe from Columbia University, uh, he, he talks a lot in one of his books about how, you know, we'll, we'll shit on companies like Nike and Apple who go into China and, you know, they're, they're, they're creating what, what we would call slave labor. But he'll say, look, you know, some of these people were either in forced prostitution or working in rice fields, starving to death. Now they are making a wage large enough to, to go to college. And maybe instead of working as a sex worker forcibly, you know, now they're working in a call center and they're able to save money for their kids' education. And so they may not have the American or Western standard yet, but they're sure moving up a couple rungs. And so you see that capitalism isn't evil, but when it's predatory capitalism and you, you intentionally keep your boot on the necks of the people down there just so you can make more and more, that, that separation is called the Gini coefficient. And, and that's the biggest predictor of the downfall of governments and societies is when income inequality gets so far apart, everything just unravels. It's okay for there to be an upper class, but you have to keep all of society yeah. moving along in tandem, at least yeah. in some healthy way. It's the, it's that bloating. It's the excess. It's the it's the excess at the top and the, and the the strangling of the bottom. And when everyone feels like they're getting ahead, even if their their standard of living is only better than it was before, and it's not good compared to the richest, they'll still feel good. Yeah. But if they can see people are becoming quarter trillionaires and they're making less compared to what they were last year. It starts to rub on them the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, and, and studies have been done. N- number one, I think the first study ever came out a couple of years ago showing economically trickle down supply side economics does not work. It does not work. Doesn't favor anybody. No. But psychologically, even the super rich, if they have to live in a society of greater homelessness and you know disease and desperation and so forth, they're not even as happy. I mean, people at the top are happier when they see their whole society becoming healthier and, and more upwardly mobile. And yet at the same time, just that that human greed is always there. Well, as long as the government's letting me do it, I'll just keep taking it. I'll just keep taking it. Well, speaking on Musk, he said something interesting. He said that um, anytime that you have an amount of capital that exceeds your ability to use uh, personally, that it's really just um, you being the personal allocator of the capital. You're just the steward of the capital. And why would he give more capital to an organization that has historically handled it poorly, like the U.S. government? Why wouldn't he try to keep as much as he can? Because he's proven that he can be a better steward. But at the same time, most of his SpaceX, the whole program, is subsidized by the government. So it's like kind of playing both sides there, aren't you? They're giving you all your money. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and this gets into a space where the further we talk about this, you're, you're going to end up seeing the, the political polls. And and I, I want to go on the record as noting that I think if you gave all control and power to the farthest left, it would be disaster. If you gave it to the farthest right, it would be a disaster. And, yeah. you know, as always, I don't mean to be cliche, the answer is not just in the middle, but it's it's how we govern the context, because what's good for our society right now may not be right in 10 or 50 years. Uh, it depends on the kind of technologies, depends on what's happening in the world with, with different 
you know, even Africa, you know, being one of the most, you know, high growth continents there is completely being bought by China. Like, you know, depending on who's yeah. in charge of what, you need a, a growing, evolving kind of, of structural power. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I think to a certain extent, you know, Bezos is definitely the Lex Luthor of our time, but he would be probably more efficient at running the post office than the government is. Yeah. I mean, he just, he gets logistics. Well, so so let me let me give you, let me put a point in the column for government both being more laissez-faire and also more regulatory. Two things that appear to be opposites, maybe both sides of the same coin. Uh, are you familiar with the book Chasing the Scream? The, I know about this book. Okay. So a, a journalist, I believe it was from Denmark, it could be Sweden. I, I think he himself was personally kind of caught up in heroin addiction, so he started doing some research. But whatever yeah. whatever country it was, yeah. Denmark or Sweden, per capita, they had the same heroin epidemic problems we did. And we know we've had almost, what, 100,000 people die last year of opioid overdoses. They had the exact oh, yeah. same stats. And so that for, for the same reasons, they said, how are we going to fix this? What are we going to do? Are we going to just continue to fight it? And somehow the government was talked into not only legalizing heroin, but taking tax dollars and creating heroin clinics where they're now giving out free heroin. They're not just legalizing it. They're now giving it out free. Here, here were the regulations. You get any pharmaceutical grade, any amount you wanted, you just had to come into the clinic. We have to administer it and it has to be on the grounds, but come in anytime you want, get whatever fix you need. What they found out was all of a sudden it wasn't just these, you know, junkies shooting up behind dumpsters. It was doctors, lawyers, teachers. Yeah, right. And right. And, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and and who truly here here's yeah. the, here's the whole premise yeah. behind this, Daniel. Who really wants to yeah. be addicted to heroin? Like you've got to have yeah. something wrong in your life. And so these people suddenly had people to talk to and they started putting counselors in in job counselors in these clinics. One year, Daniel, one year, guess how many deaths due to heroin they had? Uh, I, I would, maybe zero. Fucking zero. Yeah. Fucking zero. And guess what happened to crime related to heroin? Down. Instantly down. The day heroin was legal, that entire shadowy market went away. Well, I, I've read studies that I, I think there's a good reason. There, there are some good reasons behind, you know, me, the, the big uh, psychedelic Guy, I think there are some good reasons behind the like the anti-drug programs in American school systems. There are some good points behind that, but I think they really they overcharacterize or they mischaracterize some of these drugs. So, for instance, one thing I've I've read, and I'm I'm not a scientist, but one thing I've read is that the addiction to heroin or an opiate, but I think I mentioned heroin, is potentially less severe than alcoholism. Yeah, and, and that's just not how it's portrayed in popular media, they're like, oh, you're going to be sick for months on end and throwing up and you can't do it. It's impossible to break the habit. But I've actually heard of people who are not heroin addicts who will recreationally use heroin Absolutely. and they're not addicts. Absolutely. And that is something I, that was never talked about when I was. Absolutely. Born. Matter of fact, so because of like chronic pain, I need to have a neck surgery and I get migraines and I've got some screwed up stuff in my neck. So I have a neurosurgeon and a family doctor who just basically gives me an open prescription for what I want. You know, if I need Lortab, yeah. Percocet, anything. And I, because I'm kind of a control freak and because I care about my health, I have a spreadsheet where I track my medication use. And if I'm using more than one of those a week, I start thinking, okay, hold on. Like, I don't want to, maybe I'll just use a little more Advil right. or something. Dial it so down. yeah, so even though it is the most addictive drug perhaps on the planet, especially if you get into things like fentanyl that can kill you in an instant. Oh yeah. But you don't have to be. But here's here's my point to, to the chasing the scream 
metaphor. That's a place where government stepped in with massive control in using tax dollars to give freedom. Think of that. It's, yeah. it's not one or the other. Yes. Both can work in tandem where the government sure. can regulate a level playing field. And that's not what is done in the last hundred years in our country. No. Well, no. I mean, that's uh, that's why you have, uh, you know, the inseparability of the government from the the core business ecosystem. I mean, they're all they're playing tandem together. And I mean, th to your point, do you think that people in uh, Congress should be able to trade on the on the stock market? There's a big debate. about Yeah. This. So uh, so let me back up for a minute and just say if Congress, you know, if there were true term limits and people couldn't make a career out of this and you could get money back out of politics. I mean, literally, I mean, how can you go into politics and become, uh, you know, almost a billionaire just by getting checks from lobbyists and, and pay for your next well, They election? say get money out of politics, but was money ever out of politics? No. Well, to some degree, again, because you, you have to have financial disclosure forms and so forth. So it, it doesn't have to be, but you can get caught. Like if, if, the, sure. if you can get caught and there are consequences, as some people have, then, then it, it still matters. But to your point, should they be able to trade? I, I don't think so. And again, look. That's harsh. I know, both, but it's harsh. Both people, both parties don't want it to happen. Nancy Pelosi, who, who should <laughs> say, of course you can't trade. What did she come out and say no. this week? She goes, oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and do it. Because guess what? That's how yeah. she makes her money. Yeah. It, you know what? It just sucks for them, but it's because it's a big trade-off. It's because if you get money out of politics, then you're really having to do all that boring work for just a hundred grand a year or ninety grand a year, and you can't even insider trade. Now that sucks. But there are all people perks who will do it. Politics or the money. And, and this, this, this is where I took a little issue with your article because <laughs> it just kind of seeps itself in cynicism. There still are people who do this for the right reason. Somebody like Katie yes. Porter, who's driving a minivan, raising three or four kids. Like she ran for Congress. There was a Congresswoman in Florida who won because her, one of her kids got killed in the Parkland shooting. Congresswoman Bush from St. Louis, a nurse, you know, through the COVID thing. She's like, God damn it, I'm going to fucking run for Congress and change stuff. Like, there are Good. people who do it for the right I reasons. It. I believe it. But then you get in there and guess what? Oh, wait, I can be here for 30 years and I can make a lot of money and I can do some insider trading. Like that's hard right. to say no to. The opportunities are just there. It's like, can you can you be a celebrity and uh, not just fuck everything? Sure. But the opportunities are there. You know, can you be, a, you, you know, it's like the, the idea is how many people are strong enough to resist the temptation of just being a complete fuckhead in politics? Not that many people. Yeah. I mean, at, certainly at the top, to get to the top, you have to be fucking gross in a lot of ways. There's no way. Well, think, you know, you were talking about Elon Musk. We've talked about Zuckerberg and all that. Think how little time it takes for somebody to just, I mean, a year, two years. When you go from you're a creative, you're working hard, you got this idea, and now all of a sudden you have more money than almost anybody on the planet, how long does it take for you to fucking lose your mind and you're lose so it. out of touch that you don't even get it anymore? Like, it seems like it happens like that. Well, it's because you broke the simulation, man. No one's supposed to get to that point. And not, even, not only that, but before there was so much interconnected media, we didn't know that we were the one. We didn't know, oh, I am the richest person on the planet. So there's confirmation there. But when everyone's looking at you and saying, you're the one or you're one of the chosen few, you, there's not, your ego 
we still have ego and it must be just big dick swing. I mean, Jeff Bezos had the most expensive divorce in history. Divorced his wife, lost half his money and doubled up and made more than he lost the next year. That's big dick energy, boy. Yeah. You know what though, but it, it people- Then went to space. People can, people can resist it. You, you and I both know Ooh. people, whether it's like CeeLo Green or somebody who's a millionaire and they still live Maybe. in a little bi-level house in a standard That's subdivision. and like, different level. Yeah, but you know what? I, I have to say, I made that decision a long time ago. One, one of my kids, I you know, like 10 years ago, my son walked out into our driveway. He turned around and he took a picture of our house. And I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, oh, my friend Kyle doesn't believe we live in a normal house. And, you know, I was just, I was just out with a client and, you know, they were, they were kind of surprised that I drive a normal car. Like I'm not driving a, a $150,000 car. And I'm like, you know what? How much does a guy need? Like, what do I really need? Like, I don't want to, I don't need that to pad my ego and I can give more away. I can save more. I can pay my, my employees and my staff more. I can, sure. you know, I do all those things because I value that life experience more than knowing I'm going to become that detached asshole who just, it doesn't even matter anymore. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I hope that you're enjoying this episode with Dr. Joe Komzeski. He's a great friend of mine, and I know that he has a lot of really interesting knowledge to drop on you. He's obviously uh, pretty well, well versed in many different areas of the world, as you can tell just from listening. And if you enjoy these conversations, you know, we have a lot of off the record, quote, off the record conversations with people of note, with interesting friends, and with people who can really help you in your business and in your career and in your life. And I put those all on the New Wave Premium subscription. If you sign up for New Wave Premium, uh, we do basically unlisted podcasts, unlisted interviews, uh, private YouTube. Uh, I do tutorials. And of course, you get the all-access pass to all of our workshops. So every single month when we do workshops, you get a free pass to every single workshop. So it's, it's highly, highly, highly worth uh, your time if you're already listening to these podcasts to invest a little bit and get the full, the whole enchilada. It's 29 bucks a month. You can cancel any time. Go to newwaveentrepreneur.com to get all the details on that. You can see uh, where to subscribe right on the website. So that's all I got for you. And we'll go right back into the episode with Dr. Joe. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, one would think that you that you could get to that level of wealth and still have uh, the same level of empathy for others. But at the same time, at that extreme level, I think I think there's a big difference between like multimillionaire and then that billionaire level, because then I mean, and you look at like it, it just warps your mind over the years because you do start to develop powers that others don't have. Bill Gates can make things happen that we just can't make happen. You know, he and they're they're in government, they're in politics, they're in you know I was even reading an article recently that just details all the different uh, media companies that Gates has a hand in, and what he does is he will do charities and he'll do uh, different types of like like scholarships for 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 industry professionals, the the Bill and Melinda Gates Journalism Fund, and then they'll fund all these freaking journalists, and of course you're writing for Bill, so you want to do positive press and things that are in his direction. It's just like Oh, I see. That's one lens. It might not be completely true, but it's one lens of looking at things. It's billionaire control. That's not regular millionaire control. That's billionaire control. Bezos does the same thing. 
That, that's why that's why it has to be a decision that you've made. It, it's like Warren Buffett, dude. I mean, he's the same way we're talking about. And of course, he oh, can yeah. do whatever he wants, but he chooses not to. And you know, you've heard the old cliche: money doesn't change a person; it just it just magnifies a person. It. And yeah. um, you know, I I truly look at at life a little differently by choice. And and this is something you have to keep checking yourself. Somebody asked me the other day a question that made me think, like, what do I value most? If you could say in my little world, you know, obviously I'm not a celebrity, obviously I'm not a billionaire, but if you could say, Joe, you you have some clout and you have some resources and you've done some things other people will never do, like, what is that like? And and I, I thought about it for a long time and I said, you know what the most amazing thing is? People answer my calls. And I've heard other people say this, yeah. but if I called you, Daniel, you answer the call. If I call, if I call another friend, they answer my call. And it's like, and it's, it's not because of who I am in terms of resources. It's because I I think, I hope, you know, people have a mutual respect and friendship with me. And they think Mm -hmm. like, wow, that, you know, if Joe's calling me, this is, this is going to be great. Like I'll, I'll, I'll stop a conversation with somebody else right now to answer that call from Joe. (laughs) I don't, I don't need a rocket ship to go to space. I don't need, I don't need billions of dollars. What I love is the social connection and the fact that you ha- you have this this I don't know man it's it's like the Harvard study right like the Harvard study they've been studying the same group of men for like seventy or eighty years and, and going through this original class a graduating class at Harvard at the end of their lives they looked at what makes a happy person who has the most life satisfaction yeah. is it how much money they made is it their career choice is it their power the only thing that mattered was the depth of their personal relationships. The longest running study yeah. in US history came came down to you will only be happy based on the quality of how much you like and other people like you. I would also add to that that there the ultimate form of that is the relationship and the quality of the relationship you have with yourself. You know, um, I think about the things that I really truly value and none of them can be associated to a dollar amount, even though I enjoy making money. It's just a different pursuit. You know, when I'm training uh, martial arts, for instance, there's no amount of, I can't money it. I can't, I can't just like, ah, just gotta, just hustle it up. I can't, just gotta, just gotta get, just gotta go big. Like, you know, just gotta, you know, I I can, I can buy it. I can, you know, I can forge it. I can, I can, you know, I can, I can, uh, I can cut corners. It's, it's just like this process of mastering something. And there's this intrinsic satisfaction that builds value within myself. I feel like I'm doing something that's creating, that's creating something that can't be taken away. Same thing with the writing. You know, you're writing every day and you're doing things that are in alignment with whatever is important to you. And those are things that you can't, you can go to space and yet you can't solve those problems unless you go inside. There's nothing external you can do to fulfill that uh, feeling. And, you know, also I think that one thing about human experiences you know, you can talk about like uh, like Maslow, for instance. He has his, has his idea of like human peak experience, and I, you, and you have as well through different experiences in your life have had those peak experiences. So, for instance, if you're on stage and you're winning a bodybuilding show, that's the peak experience of winning and the elation. Or if you're doing a you know DMT journey and you're going oh crazy through the DMT realm, or if you're you know having a child and being these are all peak experiences. And so you don't need to have every experience in the world to know what something feels like. I haven't been to space yet, but like, okay, I bet there are some things that I could imagine it might feel like. And you start to realize that you don't need to have every experience to to feel complete. And so the things that money can't buy tend to be more valuable. 
you know, we could go into deep evolutionary anthropology, but what you just said about the social experience and having deep relationships, and that has to be intrinsically connected to you and your own internal experiences, it's 100% true. I mean, and I didn't engineer my life this way, but I think it is kind of ironic that I spent half of my education studying human health and the individual happiness, and then the second half, social health and social happiness. Yeah. And so, you know, when, when you look at, you know, my group of companies and projects and so forth, do you know there's not a single organization I've ever started that I did not quickly bring on a business partner or a manager or a team of other people? Because Daniel, most of what gets me excited about making money is helping somebody else learn how to do that, learn the skills. It's, it's not how to make money, it's how to do the thing that makes the money. It's how, how you develop yourself and how do you, and so even to, to this day, now that I'm in my 50s and, and I'm certifying and licensing and mentoring other personal fitness and nutrition coaches, and, and I look at them in their 20s and 30s, dude, I'm still working 80 to 90 hours a week because I love it. I love helping them. I love what, what I'm seeing it do to their lives and to their clients' lives and their families. And so I get all this internal satisfaction and all of my life experience and education has got me to this point I can do it with them and that's that's everything man yeah I mean I think it's um yeah these and these of course like it's the compound interest of having had many years of this career that's being built up and it, it's something that you know it's been like a, it's been through consistency for you that you've been able to build these relationships you're very good with that even back in the day like I remember I was introduced to you because of a friend of mine who was a pro bodybuilder in the WMBF he prepped me for my first show and then said, I can't do it again. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Talk to this guy. And he pointed out your ad in one of the magazines. And it was, it was in, uh, God, it was in, it was in uh, Natural Body and Fitness, mm -hmm. Natural Muscle and Fitness. I used to love that magazine. I had a big stack of them. And I had like Jim Cordova on the front and all these old school dudes, now, now old school, or like Brian Whitaker or something. I don't know. <laughs> and um, Dwayne Broadway. <laughs> and then, uh, and um, so I started to get into that whole culture. And you prepped me for my first show. And what I thought was so interesting was that, or my, my second set of shows, what I thought was so interesting is that you already had like a thriving community. You have, an, you have an intrinsic understanding of how to make people feel like they're part of a community. You're good at, I think, managing a community. You might even be better as the center of a community than the CEO of a company. I'm not sure. I, I appreciate that because that's, that's really what I want. I don't think I set out to do that, but I've recognized that that's where I thrive. And and if if I do have any influence I can leverage, it it is in that way. And so I, I appreciate that. It's it's that's probably the best compliment you could give me. I was thinking about this too, just my my experiences bodybuilding now it seems so far away. I think, wow, it was so many years ago. And I think what would it be like to go on stage again? And I think, you know, you learn you learn different things from every phase of your journey. I, I almost now think it's impressive that so many people do it for so many years. Me Having moved into martial arts, I think is much more something I can see long term. I I can't imagine. It just it, it's just such a it's it, I don't know. The lifestyle seems uh, so anxiety producing to me. But I guess you could say that about anything. You you know. I agree. I mean, I competed as a pro, and just my entire career spanned less than twenty years. Yet I'm still so tightly connected to it because of what I produced in the right. industry. And you know, to this day. When I have new clients coming on board, and and some people get get that competitive bug because they love some kind of competitive sport outlet. Other people, it's a bucket list thing. It's you know kind of the end point of a of a life 
and health transformation, and then they're okay with that. But you're right. It is is a 24-7 anxiety-producing thing that I could never, ever see myself doing again. But it was a formative part of who I am now, for sure. Oh, man, me too. I'm so grateful to it. I mean, and I I tell you this all the time, but that... That season training with you, that season really taught me nutrition. It really taught me nutrition. And that has been a tool that I have used consistently ever since then. And, you know, even just the idea of tracking it, you know, I was tracking food when I was just using your food dictionary because uh, you had one that you would you would prescribe uh, when you sent out client packages. And then I would have an Excel media. spreadsheet. Yeah. Yeah, free social media. And I had an Excel spreadsheet. And, you know, it really drilled in the importance of having um, objectivity in your measurement. And then it gave me this safety net of whatever happens, I just know how to track and get my way back to it. It doesn't matter if I could be 15 pounds overweight and just be like, click, click, click numbers. Even recently, you know, over the holidays, I was eating a lot of food and I wasn't training that much. Not going to lie. I was eating, it wasn't at my, my best moment. And I gained maybe seven or so pounds and I had a tournament coming up. So I'm like, you know, I really got to lose this weight. And I just, I just instantly knew how to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's given me the, the the ROI on my health has been so tremendous over the years. Uh, I've stayed almost injury free from the training, you know, and it's really helped me in the martial arts as well because it keeps me strong. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the foundations. They don't teach that in school. As nutritionists, I'm sure you can agree. This was such an important thing. And, and now it seems like second nature to me. I could imagine if I gotten financial skills at that age right. because you really start to learn. Anyway, well, you know, it it has become a true metaphor for life. And as the guy who created macronutrient tracking and flexible dieting, Mm -hmm. my whole goal was to show people even back then, like imagine me at 25, 27 years old, just figuring this out, needing out of necessity to create methodology to help clients. So I knew what didn't work. I had to figure out what would work. It was to, to show them that kind of structure Nutrition is a language like anything else. There, you know, even though even though we think of metabolic science as something that you can't know because you just don't get a printout yet of what your exact calorie expenditure is every day and so forth, it is still knowable. You just have to do a little work and be right. accurate and be objective and look at it as a science. And once you learn that language, once that, and again, come back to government, there's this regulatory body rules rigidity structure. You learn that, and as you just said, now it's a tool that allows freedom. It's not freedom or structure. It's not flexibility or structure. It's freedom through structure. And so once those boundaries are there- Discipline equals freedom. Yeah, you got that tool in in the tool belt. You can use it whenever you want. You're free. Yeah, you can pull it right out, and um, you don't need to have the anxiety of, oh, I've lost my thread. It's there's no th- the thread is never lost. Now, of course, you you also um, it does create a certain amount of um, probably positive, at least for me, positive. I would say strict body image of if I go past a certain point, I say this is too far. You know, most people, it, the average American would see a point that I would say I've gone way overboard and say you're you're absolutely fine. But for me, because I'm conditioned to think in terms of what's the absolute best package on stage. Even though I have no desire to get there, my room for flexibility is smaller than someone. And I think that's positive brainwashing. That through I, I had this conversation with a teenager just this week. And yes, some people can go too far. Yes, if you've had trauma experiences and you're too obsessive, then yes, yes. That, can, that can pull you in a direction you don't want to go. But again, it's using the structure to create freedom. And, and like you said, you know, we, we live in a society where 50, 60 years ago, 2% of people were overweight. Now it's 70%. Do we, do, are we really going to say we shouldn't 
go back yeah. to being accurate. Are we overcorrecting? Maybe we're overcorrecting in the wrong direction. Maybe we, oh, we should overcorrect yeah. to fitness model. You know, oh, 70% are slightly underweight. That was a, di- be a different problem. You know, the, the you know, healthy at any size and so forth. Like, oh, right. if, if you want everybody to die of heart disease and cancer and, you know, diabetes, then sure, I guess you could call that health if you want to redefine health. <laughs> Yeah, I think you can be mentally healthy at any size. That's a different uh, thing. And I think maybe we should have that distinction. You can feel good about yourself and feel like you're beautiful and you're mentally healthy, and you are. And you can also still be beautiful and have a physical uh, or potential physical ailments. If you're pre-diabetic, it's just more of a, a numbers thing. It's like the, the curse of humanity is just that binary thinking. As I was talking to this like young number, person you know? this week, and they they were kind of on that side that we shouldn't worry about it. We, you know, of course we shouldn't have all these body image issues and all that. And I said, okay, that's fine. But if you're going to be anti-education and anti-helping people with nutrition. Are you sure that your theory, because you, you, you've, you've just learned something in a college class and I know you're really excited about it, but you're, you're still a teenager. And so your experience is based on your life at this moment in time. Are you willing to say that your approach is perfect for every person at every age on every country in every decade of humanity forever? Like, do you, do you have, you, have you just discovered the answer that solves it for everybody? Oh boy. Yeah. You went Jordan Peterson on him, huh? Well, I mean, it says like, that's, that's the problem we run into because, you know, we always feel as sapiens, like as soon as we learn something new, it's like, oh, I'm enlightened. I got the answer. Now I have the theory of everything. I'm a master. No shit. And it's like, you just, yeah, you're just one more you're just one more rung up. Okay, that's great. Go for the next one. Go for the next one. Realize that there are infinite rungs of you yet to go. Have you read um, uh, Harari's book, Sapiens? Oh, dude, that's, if I had like, if if I, you know, I I live in a library and uh, that's got to be one of the top five books I've ever read in my life. It's great. I, you know, just like anything, the publishers didn't have to make him have to do a sequel. You know, they don't, why guys? They just want to squeeze it. They want to squeeze it. You know, it's like he already did a masterpiece. He doesn't need to do 1.5 masterpiece. He's already done it. But uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. It's like Robert Sapolsky's book, Behave. You know, he's a guy who did it right. He spent 50 or 60 years teaching at Stanford, studying, researching, evolutionary, endocrinology, primatologist. He waits until he's retired and he writes one book that's like 800 or so yeah, pages called Behave, yeah. you know, the science of human behavior. And it's like, that's it. Mic drop, I'm that's done. It. Yeah, he, did. he pulled a Harper Lee. Yeah, I mean, that's... I thought it was disrespectful that they dug her up, basically, to release that second book <laughs> before she died, or like right after she died. That's going to be my uh, goal. Co- I'm going to co- wait. Co- Hopefully, co- I don't die German. before I do this. But, uh, you know, my, <laughs> my goal is going to, you know, write something that's like so good, uh, it just erases uh, everything else I'm ever, I've ever done. And it's like, here's the one thing I can leave behind. But then you have to have Tracy finish the last chapter because you die early. Probably, yeah. You know? What What would Joe have wanted right. here? <laughs> well, then we have all this content. I always you can go in. You can probably have an algorithm that just finishes it for me based on, you know, media content. <laughs> yeah. They have some decent uh, some decent AI writing algorithms Absolutely. now, which are not bad, honestly. Absolutely. I, I was talking yeah. to a venture capitalist, a guy who, he's, he's, he's a billionaire and he, a client of mine in New York City. And he was giving me some advice. He said, Joe, if, if, if I could give you one bit of advice, you really have to get into AI now. And it's not like the AI you think, like the AI you see out there that exists. I'm talking about the AI that's that nobody knows about yet. And it's literally oh, yeah. to recreate you. It's, it's like a Ray Kurzweil working for Google kind of AI. Like mm-hmm. you should have an algorithm that can literally finish your sentences that anybody who asks a question to you, 
this algorithm could answer it exactly like you would answer it. And he said it exists. Like you, you have to pay for it, but it's there. Well, that's inevitable with all the military spending that they put into development of this stuff, which I, I think, and I, this is something I want to touch on at some point, the idea that in most cases, the public is subsidizing the government uh, or public companies, which then create products that we then buy back at a premium. It, it's 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 banana it's bananas with no discount or 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 buddy buddy points for contributing all the money. We did that with with, with navigation, you know, with GPS. We're doing that with all these different systems that we test out in the government that we, you know, I mean, that's what happened with the COVID vaccine. Well, now, you know? now imagine this. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want you to think I'm like way out there too far on the left, but imagine if we could do that and the people at the top making these products and selling them back to us, if everybody was okay with just limits, like if you were in Norway and you said, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you a society that has no crime you know, everybody, everybody has the greatest health care. Everybody has, you know, free education, everything. And you as a surgeon, you can only make 250000 a year. And you as a school teacher, you're, you're going to make 125000 a year. If you're a sanitation worker, you're going to make $100,000 a year. Like everybody has what they need. Would that be okay? Or do you just have to have the opportunity to be a billionaire even though it means that the bottom 50% are going to be homeless and, and eating their own shit for dinner. Like, like, where, like <laughs> which society do you really want to live in? That's kind of an answer. Is it all or nothing? What's that? Is it, does it have to be all? It's binary, one or the other? Well, that's what I'm you know? saying. It doesn't. But we, we certainly have decided in the U.S. to, to choose the latter. Um, there are absolutely hybrid models out there. It, there's not, I mean, and that's the answer. It's, it's somewhere in the middle but remember that middle will fluctuate based on current circumstances. Whatever the middle is now is probably going to change in twenty years. It needs to change. Oh, there's no shortage of wealth. I mean, if the, if the public, like in, in an ideal system or in a hypothetical system that doesn't exist, and maybe this is a, a Web three system, if we are going to be the ones that is investing essentially the initial startup capital for so many things that are being produced and then sold back to us, shouldn't we be getting some of those dividends? I, I mean, dude, I when when. Um, Andrew Yang was talking about some of that stuff. Like, like, do I sound stupid? Am I stupid? The, the amount of money that people make and that we've invested into, now we're losing occupations and entire industries to the fact that right. we were the ones to, paying to the, for those clicks. Right. Click, 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 right. click, 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 click. I'm giving you money through right. that and I get nothing for it. Right. Like, you, you have literally right. taken my intellectual property and I get nothing for it. So, you're talking, you're talking, uh, just data from corporate, and that's also happening from just government tax too. Well, that, that, that's what that's what Andrew Yang wanted. It, it's just let's let's take yeah. that that UBI just because some of these companies that are now almost trillion dollar companies, all because they can sell data based on your right. behavior. Yeah, sell it back to us. You get nothing for it at all because nobody thought of how to commodify that model. So w w we just let the Zuckerbergs of the world take it all. And we willfully right. gave it away. And now other com other countries have tried to block that. They've tried. Well, the only way it worked a little. I think. The only way you get it back is is kind of creating those algorithms that you know you get so much money back. You get a fraction of a penny back for whatever clicks because because you're paying for those advertising dollars, or you have to tax those companies at the top and give it back as a UBI like 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 Andrew Yang wanted. But e either way, I mean, you, you could choose any way to do it. But the fact that we have willfully just allowed people to do it because you know what we get for it? 
we get to use Instagram for free. We get to use yeah. it. Yeah. Right. Well, well, if you're, if you're, if it's free, you're the product. Yeah. And, and you know, like you know? nobody saw that coming and nobody, you, you could probably explain this to a hundred people and 99 people wouldn't even get what you're talking about. Well, now I think they would in these funny clips that you see with these, in these congressional hearings of Zuckerberg, he's trying to explain to the old people how they're actually making money and they're just, they're not even con connecting it when he's explaining it. <laughs> exactly. Them. You know, and it's like, how can they regulate on a thing? They don't fundamentally understand what's happening here. Right. And I think we should get both. I think we should get some sort of UBI back and I think we should get some sort of, uh, some sort of stake in what's happening, you know, the, in, in the ads for sure. I mean, they have these things like, like there's this browser called Brave Browser. If you heard of this? Oh, I think I have. Yeah. It's a new browser. It's been out for a while, but it's a Web3 or a Web3 leaning browser where for every minute that you're on there and every ad that you're being served, you're earning a certain token. Exactly. Uh, the token that, that Brave uh, has, it's called BAT, Basic Attention Token. And you can trade that on Coinbase or any other uh, exchange for money. Mm -hmm. And so I use that primarily now. That, that, that is the model. That that's the model of you getting something yeah. back for your your attention, yeah. which is then creating ad revenue dollars for other people. Yeah, and that, and that, I think that is, and that's uh, Chris Dixon, one of the venture capitalists at Andreessen Horowitz, said Web one was read only, Web two was read write, Web three is read write own, and that ownership is of the data that we are giving in exchange for our experiences on the internet, and it's also just um, it's just owning different assets in a non-physical way, in a non-local non way. And that is, I think, what the, the push of this, this new industry is. And I believe that Web3 is going to create almost, you know, for lack of a better word, like a holographic world on top of the one that we're already living on, where it mirrors what we have, but there are no limitations around physical restrictions. And so that opens up new flows of commerce, new ideas, new things that which, which can be created but can't be physically uh, mirrored, so things that didn't exist in the physical world, uh, new ways of exchanging things. And so there's going to be a new economy built on top of it. The stock market as it exists, I believe, will continue, but it will also start to then compete with the crypto markets. For instance, the stock market is still uh, like a weekday thing. Crypto market is 24-7. That's why it's going to outpace the growth of the stock market if the stock market doesn't at least adjust. Although there is some exposure to the crypto market in the stock market as these bigger companies take a part of their assets in Bitcoin. That, so they are then linking together. That, that, that's, that, that, so I, th I think there are two big things. Yes, eventually Wall Street will own the altcoin world because they, they literally... Yes, they're going to make the altcoin they world. They literally yeah, <laughs> want to be there. But I, I yeah. do think it changes the lever of power away from governments. And so everybody says, this is great. We're going to ha we're going to have this, uh, you know, you get you you take the currency and put it in the hands of the people. And, and that way, government tyranny can't happen. But the person who's going to control it is now going to be the corporate world again, because now they're going to have the, the, the money and they're going to you're going to control inflation and deflation yes. and so forth. So again, somebody's always going to be on top. This is it. it, it in any closed yeah. system that our species is involved in, you're going to have winners and losers. If you can't create a symbiotic environment where the winners are okay with the people in the bottom tiers at least having enough, and I'm not talking about giving it to them as if they're just destitute and need the handout, you have to create an environment where everybody thrives. Allow for the And when that Gini coefficient just keeps pulling people apart in income inequality, just at catastrophic light year speed, it's it's the undoing we're seeing right now. That is exactly why the polarization and all the despondency is right at the root of our country's problems right now. Well, I think, and I think what's happening in the crypto space is that you're right. There there is always still going to be a um, there are, there will still be a class system in every new system that's set up, and there will be economic stratification. 
But I think what's happening is it's almost like the 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 ramp is starting lower now for certain things where you actually can start earlier and end up with these big these big gains quickly in ways that just weren't available, you know, since maybe the last 20 years. So, for instance, you look at like the economic boom during the, the Web 1.0 days with the dot-com bubble. And that was an opportunity that a lot of people didn't see coming. Amazon opened in 97 or 98 at $18. It's split four times since then. That $18 would have been, you know, now that shares are 3,500 bucks a share, would have been equivalent to $1.2 million just for $1,000 of, you know, of shares at, at opening. And people are seeing crazy gains like that in the crypto space that they're, they certainly uh, will be in the minority to a certain extent, but many people are seeing the rise in the space just by being a part of it in a way that's not possible in the stock market. When you look at, you know, the average return being 10%. 15% on a good, you know, on a good you know, year. But again, talk about the rich getting rich, the poor getting poorer. For every person who said, man, I got into Do Dogecoin early and I made 5,000% or something. There are other people putting their entire life savings into something and losing it the next week. And so again, you you just- Don't do that. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you have to still be an investor with, with the different levels of how much money can be risk capital, how much money needs to be kind of in there for the long term for retirement. Like you- if 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 you're somebody who just gets on that crypto train and you're just thrilled that you think you're going to win the lottery, it's probably going to work out pretty poorly. No, so this is what I always tell people, and you know, obviously we'll preface this by this is not financial advice, but this is what I always tell people. One, I would recommend that you just become generally involved in the industry. Don't just invest in a coin because someone says it's a good idea. What's happening now is a shift in technology and with it the economy. So it would be useful for you to just start doing some general research about what are the origins of Bitcoin? And oh, that came out in 2009 and Satoshi, Satoshi Nakamoto had this white paper and this idea, like read on the origin, understand the basics. And then I would even look into, um, you know, what is the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and what is an altcoin? And then, you know, so so get a get an underlying uh, under, understanding of the information. For me, that even means looking at smart contracts, understanding uh, how smart contracts are developed. So there are different uh, programming languages like Solidity and Rust. And these are what uh, these new altcoins are being built with and built on. So I, I like to get a lay of the land first and then look at the coins and make a hypothesis or look at the industry and make a hypothesis. So I've said this before, and this is my hypothesis. And I'd like to hear yours, Joe, as well. Mine is that, um, okay, Web3 technology, which is about privacy, speed, you know, security, anonymity, uh, ownership, that technology is inevitable. I don't see the trend reversing. It seems like there's too much momentum in that direction. If that trend is inevitable, then the coins that will do the best or the companies, let's see, let's just call them companies because really these coins are companies. It helps to think of it that way. But the companies that will do the best are the ones that are creating altcoins uh, because altcoins are the ones that are going to be used to build projects on top of. Bitcoin will always be there. But there's not much programming that can be done on Bitcoin. There is something called Stacks, which is a protocol on top of Bitcoin where you can build applications, but it's not going to be a big hub. Altcoins like Ethereum uh, and, and especially Ethereum are going to be the leaders of this next phase of Web3 growth. DeFi is built on there. NFTs are built on smart contracts. Um, you know, uh, Web3 gaming is all on smart contracts. So that's where the action is going to be. So if that's the hypothesis, then you look at the smart contract in the, in the altcoin space. Ethereum is the leader in this space. Um, it's the first altcoin is since 2015. It's the platform that most of these Web3 projects and these, these other coins are being built on top of. They're being built on Ethereum. But there are competitors to Ethereum. So there are competitors like Solana, 
um, Avalanche, Algorand, Cardano. And these are also growing in market share. And so my hypothesis is that Web3 will continue to go up and so will altcoins as a market, but individual altcoins hard to tell because it's basically just every, every, every company for itself at this point. So much money is being poured into the space. So you have to make assessments based on which projects you like and what platform those projects are building on and do some of your own research. But I think in general, we can say the space is trending up. And my last piece of this is that volatility is very high, but I think risk long-term, just in the general market, is uh, tolerable con compared to what's happening just with fiat currency. I think there's a big difference between risk and volatility. Volatility is short-term, risk is long-term. And I think it's almost riskier to hold dollars than to intelligently invest in something like, let's say, Ethereum or Solana, something that has a strong foothold, I think will continue to perform well compared to what we see is trending down consistently, the dollar. Yeah, so um, I know well, I, what I like to do in something that just doesn't quite exist, like we're, we're just kind of creating some prognostication on what we think is going to happen. And, and there is all this recent history that we're living in but if you if you can't detach your emotion and your hope from it, and and instead let's go back to Yuval Noah Harari and say, okay, look, what 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 are the human nature principles? What what do humans always do in these situations? And I'm gonna say two two principles that I I like to think these these uh, cryptocurrencies are gonna you know travel on are number one you know that there's going to be a lot of catabolism because you can't have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of thousands of currencies that make it because eventually, if the goal is to use it for the actual exchange of goods and services, you know, you just, it's not going to work to pull out your device right. and have to choose from, okay, which one do you want? I'll give you some evergreen coin. I'll give you some Ethereum and <laughs> You know, and so you take Zcash. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's just going to be there. There has to be some kind of centralization, which again is kind of the antithesis of what the goal is. Like, you know, we, we want to decentralize currency, and how is that going to work? Because we have to centralize the decentralized currency. But at the same time, it is is human nature to need some kind of convenience because we will water finds its own level. We will find the path of least resistance, and so I think there there will be clear winners. But I do like the fact that. I could be totally wrong. And here's where I could be totally wrong. This is that second parallel. Is that like you're talking about these projects that they're built on and so forth, and they they almost do become not just a currency, but a cause. And, and they become a project and they become a foundational institution. And, you know, I think if you can gather enough, you know, people behind that, then it's survivable. Again, you may not be the biggest actual currency used, but I don't know. Like, like there could be somebody somewhere that creates the technology, just like blockchain. Nobody knew what blockchain was ever going to be. There could be something we don't even know is going to happen that, that could really iron out some of these problems. And it could make the exchange of multiple currencies easier. Like, who knows? I, I really think all the reasons I, I could say something won't work. I also like to say technology is evolving so rapidly. I could be absolutely fucking wrong. And it could it could be totally well yeah shocking. I mean everything we talk about blockchain is so hypothetical nothing's actually working on blockchain yet we're just talking about what it could do right. on the blockchain you can do this and this you're like we're only just trading tokens right now we're not doing anything no technology actually is being used and quantum computing is not even generally available yet as soon as those things are going what you're talking about is going to be light years behind.
You know, it, what's funny is I, no. I thought we were doing this podcast just to talk about your article, and uh, I, I, I feel like we're having a, a Joe Rogan podcast here. We're just gonna. It's a good podcast. Well, it's all, but it's all related though. You know, it's web, it's Web three. It's uh, I mean, what else is there to talk about? It, it's it's politics. It's and I haven't had a good uh, political banter on this podcast in a while. Well, I'll, I'll encapsulate. I, I think you know we're kind of talking about just just the, as human nature drives entrepreneurship and. You know all all these evolving things that are just coming at us so rapidly, and and if if I can contribute anything to that world, it's that you know I I have lived through a lot of those different phases. Obviously, you know it's still in my finite world, but um, it's 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 bizarre. I, I it's interesting. I never would have thought at fifty two years old that there would be this much change happening. You know when when I got into my field of expertise. It's like you, you just kind of do this thing, you build this company, and 40 years later, you're giving out retirement packages and gold watches. Yeah. And now it's like, whoa, yeah. like the whole world is upside down in, in every way. I'm not sure how a college could give really good advice about getting a job at this point. I'm not sure what they could say. What would they say? It, well, it, I mean, they are literally saying that they don't know what to say. Like it's, it's uh, There are so many people almost down on education, which I don't agree with. I, I still think there's a reason to sit at the feet of people who've spent their lives studying something. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, it's 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 not going to guarantee you a career. It's not going to guarantee you a living. You got you got to bring a lot more to the table than just that college education. I think you have to be strategic. I think you have to really think about what you want to accomplish and put more thought into it than just being part of this machine. You know, the educational system used to just be this machine that chew them up, spit them out, produce the widget, the widget student, you know, stamp, doctor, stamp, accountant, stamp, lawyer. But that now I think you have to be much more intentional about what you're going to do. Even with your kids, like they're all doing different things. And I feel like they're intentional about what they're doing. They're not doing something because you said to do it. Absolutely. And it, it's one of the things yeah. that I was smart enough to do with my kids is to to not give them advice. Like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Just you're going to have to figure this out, but you better make sure you love it because you're going to have to work harder than ever to achieve it. And I, I do. I have I have four kids who are all in completely different interests and industries, and they're carving out their own paths. And it, it's amazing to see because they're they're thriving just on the foundation I gave them of commitment and work ethic and intellectual curiosity and, and having the guts to take those risks. And, uh, you know, just, just, it's, it's almost like all four kids just, just went to, you know, the four corners of the world intellectually and are, they're doing different things. They have totally different personalities and skill sets, but they're all happy because they're in the game, in the hunt, and they're, they're just trying to figure out their best life. That's interesting too, because it's like the same. It's the same mentality. If you're doing your best work, it doesn't matter what field you're in. It's the same mentality, and you, you know, doing. I think doing your best work is something that is maybe foreign to a lot of people because we're so used to just phoning it in, dialing it in, and not really being keyed into what we're actually working on because we spend a lot of our our adolescence doing things we don't really want to do. By the time we get to adult life, we just think, all right, well, I guess I'm just supposed to do more of what I what I don't really care about doing. But as long as I get a good paycheck, it's worth it. But then if you if you go towards really what you love and then you do your best work, you hit this optimal stride where life becomes more energizing and you end up making more usually. But it's counterintuitive in a way. You know, because I'm in the health space, you, you're, this is not going to be foreign to you. But you have to know that the highest level people who come to me, the ones who have the most money, they've had the most success, they are the most miserable. 
They are physical wrecks. They are emotional <laughs> wrecks. And oh. and it's and it's not because, you know, of the success. It's because I believe it. it's because they forgot that dopamine is all about the pursuit of the goal. It's not achieving the goal. It's staying in the hunt. It's, you know, like I said, there's a, there's a reason I'm still working 80, 90 hours a week because I love what I'm doing. I never thought I would have so many things I love doing. And like I said, the, the world keeps changing so fast. My industry keeps changing so fast that if, if you're not somebody who loves that thrill of, of staying in an active pursuit, which is how our brain is chemically constructed anyway, I think you do just go off the rails and you become obese or you become addicted to something. You, you know, it, you could be choose your addiction. It could literally be anything. And then all of a sudden you just wake up one day and say, man, I am just fucking miserable and I don't know why. Yeah, it goes beyond midlife crisis. Uh, what's we were talking about this earlier. Uh, what are you working on now? Like you said earlier that you were like, okay, I'm just going to totally lean into the fact that I'm the coach's coach. And how, and what is that? How has that evolved? What has that produced for you? Well, you know, I started out when I transitioned from physical therapy into creating nutrition programming. And I, I created this little, what I would call a kind of a corporate wellness facility where we were doing personal training and and physical therapy and nutrition consulting and all that. That intersected then with my writing for fitness magazines. And so that that launched me into the space of creating flexible dieting, macronutrient tracking, which has now become an entire industry. And now I've come full circle where yeah. I, I've stayed busy in coaching people and I created a certification agency. We, we started licensing our program. So we have a franchise model that we have coaches internationally. And, and so I started reaching out with all these spokes off of the same wheel. But at some point I realized, okay, they're, they're, I, instead of just randomly doing things because I have an idea, I, I need to have a strategy to this. So I, I really started working on a vertical integration model where I could tell people, as you mentioned, I'm the coach's coach. What, what do you do, Joe? I equip coaches for the next generation. I, I give them what they need. Well, how do you do that? Well, I, I can certify them. I can mentor them through this program. I can license them through this program. I have these, these coaching organizations that are just international teaching think tank organizations. Like whatever, whatever door you wanna come into, it's because that's what level you are in your coaching career. But I've got a path laid out for you to succeed and to build a career. So we have the B2C model where we create these resources for our coaches to use. We have an app. We have programming and all that. So I'm actually a little bit more involved right now in that, in just making sure the product and service. What types of uh, coaches? Any any type of health coach or is it coach over General, general coach coaching. You know, I, 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 I can help anybody, but I think most people know me if I had to pick a niche as a nutrition coach. That's the industry I created. But yes, there are personal trainers who may focus more on the training and nutrition is a little bit more of an add-on. There are people who are nutrition coaches where training is a little bit more of an add-on. There are more holistic nutrition coaches who want to talk about psychological well-being and all these other things. But of course... Most of their clients come in through the nutrition door, even though they specialize on this. So nutrition is the common thread, but you can emphasize different branches of health. So I, I, I have to say, if I, if I pick one thing just so it's clear in people's minds, it's nutrition coaching, but I often try to find a way to fit fitness and wellness and psychology in there so people know it is very much interrelated. I think people don't realize that you really did 
create the nutrition coaching industry and specifically counting macros was not a thing. And then you started developing it, writing about it and doing it with your clients. They were very successful that it became a thing. Yeah, uh, it was totally by accident. I wish I had. That wasn't always a thing. If I had actually <laughs> realized it was a thing, I, I would be like a Jeff Bezos type figure probably because there there are companies like uh, my fitness pal yeah. who were bought by Under Armour and you know there there are billions of dollars being made you know. on my work oh yeah um but at the same time it's like it's, it's <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's literally like trying to trademark lettuce or something it's like well all, all yeah, i did was yeah. take these moving parts that were already there and teach people like here's nutrition here's math here's dieting methodologies like like here's how we need to order these things as we talked about earlier but yeah if 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 me at 25 had the experience of me at 52 yeah, I, I I would be in a different place, um, and and maybe not happier. You know, that's my whole point today. Like like I I love the path I traveled. Um, you know, I I just probably have a better eye retrospectively realizing some things now because of what's come up behind me. As they say, you know, it, it's never good to be the first one. It's always good to be the second one. The the, the first one is out there blazing oh, yeah. the trail. The second one is out there like making the money, learning oh, yeah. how to do it. The first one takes all the arrows. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, and I've also realized that too. And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll close it up. I was, I was thinking, uh, as anyone who's listening is thinking about maybe their path in life. And I was kind of just reviewing mine and I'll be 34 this year. So I'm not incredibly old, but I'm not also super young. It's not like, you know, I'm not, you know, I, I have, I've had enough experiences and, and seen some patterns and cycles where I can make some inferences. And then there's some wisdom attained from that. You know, the more cycles, the more wisdom. I've got your book, Rich 20 something things, right there. I'm looking at it right now. Rich 20. Yeah. Hey man, hey, that uh, was a very good book, uh, and it was it was a useful it was a useful uh, stepping stone for me. And so uh, I've learned that there is, um, in terms of looking at patterns in your life, we can always talk about destructive patterns, and maybe that's a different podcast. But look look for positive patterns too. Look for when you've had your most success, and success defined as feeling the best about what you're doing, and also if there's a monetary component to it, when you're actually in your zone and, and working at your highest level, and you're getting compensated well for it. And maybe you'll find that over your professional career, there have been multiple times where you've made money, but it hasn't felt good. And you've made money other times where it's felt effortless, you know, and then same thing with your work times when you've really had to grind it out versus times where you've, it's felt effortless and you still produced a lot. Look for those positive trends, those positive patterns and try to optimize for those. That's what I'm doing in my life. And I'm looking back at my life and rather than setting goals, which are fine, but those are more end goals. Those are more, those are more outcome dependent. I'm thinking more about the inputs rather than the outputs. And if my inputs like writing, like getting back to center with the meditation, really committing to that, uh, even I mean, even doing cold showers in the morning, you know, but just getting back to the routines, the roots, the habits, the foundations to optimize for the outcome, the output, I think is a healthier way of approaching behavior change and habit change than obsessing over outcomes which are more complex. I agree. Matter of fact, the word you just ended with, complex, the the concept of complex thinking, being able to step back, analyze with some level of humility, humility, realize that you may not have all the answers, but you want to find them. That, but what you said about positivity, it's it's literally everything. If if you cannot get through your day and your week without feeling like, man, that was great. I, I told somebody this week, today is going to be the best Monday of my life, and I truly believe that. And tomorrow is going to be the best Tuesday of my life. And you know what? Best Next Tuesday. Monday is going to be the, even a better Monday. 
And and I wake up thinking that truly. I mean, I just do. And if you don't, if you're you don't sick. have that level of positivity, you're like sick. life will beat the living shit out of you. It will. You have to. You have to. You have to. It's it's about intention because when you say that, you're also intending for things to go that way. It's like you know when I say to my dog, "God, you're just such a stupid fucker." She does more stupid <laughs> things, you know. But if I say, you're so smart, you only pee outside, you know what you're doing, you're really good, you know, then she seems to do better things. There's a, you know, maybe that's like string theory, quantum physics. Well, I, I do agree. It, you know? It's not about just saying it and it'll happen. It does set your mindset to do those things. You, you are literally creating your own forward path by doing that. One thing I'll mention here, I, you know, I love, I love talking to you. Well, I'll mention this thing I'm working on uh, or that I've been uh, just continuing to pay attention to just in ways of intentional living. And I have a friend, uh, and this is useful for anyone who's listening on this podcast. I have a friend uh, named Chris Stoikos. He's a very interesting guy and he taught me this. But essentially what I'll do is before I go to complete something that's important, and as I go throughout my day, I will intentionally call out what I'm doing to purposely get myself in the position of mentally following through with the thing. So what I'll do is I'll say, um, Let's say, let's say I want to make sure that I go out for a run. I'll say out loud to myself, I'm going to go downstairs, put on my shoes. I'm going to lace them up, tie them, and go out the door for a run. And then I'll get outside the door for a run. And I'll say, and I'll get outside the door. And then I'll get outside. I'll start running. I'll say, I'm going to go to that corner. I'm going to jog around the block, and I'm going to do three miles. And I'm going to come back, and it's going to feel great. And I'll do it. And even as I'm jogging, sometimes I'll say, this feels awesome. And I'll just say it. Seriously. And you program yourself and then you you say what you're going to do and then you do it to reinforce to yourself that you do the thing you say you're going to do. Then you praise yourself while you're doing it. It really creates a positive loop. And anyone can use this with things that you want to ingrain. So just something Because it's true neural chemistry. Like it's not just words. You, you are creating your brain. Your, your brain has these thoughts that then shapes the brain. And then the brain can have different new thoughts and then that that reshapes the brain. You are constantly creating your reality, not because of woo-woo self-talk, it's because that's creating action and that changes your literal brain. I mean, this. I mean, the, the, when people say that we don't understand the brain, there are tons of neuroscientists who totally understand the brain. But the fact that the lay person <laughs> does not understand how plastic it really yeah. is and what we can do, is just fascinating to me. And and I, I love that this talk about another podcast. That's that is my hobby horse right there, baby. Oh yeah. Well the brain is the only organ that named itself and all the other organs, if you really think about it. It's actually fucking weird. You know, it's really fucking it's like some octopus shit. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation. Um uh, Klemzeski, where can we find your online footprint? TheDietDoc.com is still my central website and at Joe Klemzeski is the social media platforms you can find me at. Pretty simple. If you can spell my name, simple. Cool. We'll put it all in the notes. Well, I don't. I was going to ask you to this. I was going to open up the episode. Who do you think has had more times? Have well, you just you're, you're older. But how many times do you think you've gotten to correct people for Klimzeski versus my Di Piazza? What do you think is harder? I I, I have it, it. It's under five people in my entire life who have ever said my name ethnic eth, eth, ethnically correct. Because even okay, Klimzeski is an Americanized dictum. It's it's Klimshevsky. Just like Mike Miklashevsky or Coach Shashevsky. So when somebody pulls that out, Shevsky. I'm like, whoa, that person's from Europe. That person, you know, that, that person knows some shit. With an F, Klemchevsky? Yeah, yeah. Klemchevsky. 
Klemzeski is how I learned it as a kid wow. because that was like the Americanized version. D Piazza seems a little er- easy when you've got Klemzeski as a name. It it does. That I think the C anything with a Z really <laughs> fucks people up. But C but C Z we just don't have that in yeah. English. You know, at least with pizza, they, Piazza they say pizza. Oh, it's like a yeah. pizza. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, now I can't say like Mike Piazza on the mess because now it just ages me. He's not, you know, he's not a, not a good reference anymore. Right. right. Uh, Joe Klimbeski, all everything's in the show notes. Thank you, sir. Uh, it has been a pleasure. Uh, one of my oldest uh, mentors and uh, just a great guy who's seen me win every bodybuilding show he's ever come. I love you, man. Thanks for having me on. Love you too. <laughs> Later. Thank you so much for listening to that episode with my friend, Dr. Joe Klimczewski. I uh, love every chance I have to get on the phone with him. I hope that you enjoyed uh, this conversation. And while you're at it, make sure that you like and subscribe uh, to this podcast on whatever platform that you are listening to it on. And if you're watching it on YouTube, go ahead and do the same. Leave a comment. Make sure people know that you are here and part of this community. We are building this thing from the ground up and we need to see you. We need to hear you. And if you haven't checked out newwaveentrepreneur.com, what are you waiting for? We're putting all the updates for the community on that website. And you can also check out New Wave Premium, which has all the stuff that we simply can't include on these podcasts and these videos uh, for our premium members. So check it out, newwaveentrepreneur.com. Much love, guys. I will catch you on the flip side. The water is warm and the tide is rising. I will catch you on the other side. It's time to surf this new wave. Peace.